Okay, we are recording. Hey, what's going on there, everybody? Welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. My name is Eric Nemchak. His name is Stephen Trinkwald. Stephen, we are back after a brief hiatus, and we're going to do uh, one of your favorite exercises, the uh, cases for and against title contenders, or probably a better term for it would be teams that are above 500, right? <laughs> In this particular season, yeah, I think that's apt. Uh, yeah, this is one of my favorite exercises, just kind of going through these top five here. I think these are the five teams that you know you could realistically see at least competing for a championship if everything went well. Um, the rest of the playoff picture, maybe not so much, but but these five teams I think are all legitimately pretty good, so we'll just go through them all and kind of talk about why they could make a run, what might be preventing them from making a run, and uh, hopefully this will be a fun exercise. All right, so let's get started. Uh, we're just going to, I think we have this organized by team record, so we'll start with the Chicago Sky, defending champion Chicago Sky baby. They're 23-7 and in first place. Second in offensive rating, fourth in defensive rating. They have a 7-3 and record against the rest of the teams we're going to be talking about. 7-4 and if you include the Commissioner's Cup. Uh, they've got four games remaining against teams above 500. One against Connecticut, one against the Mystics, one against the Storm, and one against the Aces. Stephen, what stands out about the Chicago Sky? What is their case for winning another title? I mean, a lot. I think this is... Uh, I like that. In my eyes, one of probably the, the two co-favorites here. Uh, I mean, this is just a really great team to start with. As you mentioned, they are the number one seed in the playoffs, at least for now. So home court, I think it does mean something, even if the Sky were able to do so much without it last year. But I mean, you just look at like the, the construction of this team. It's, to me, the platonic ideal of like an eight-player playoff rotation. Very balanced starting five, all five players averaging double figures, seven players at 15 points per 36 minutes or higher, which is just incredible. And seven players, you know, in their rotation, not just played a couple of games and, and then went on their way. But seven there, there's players... Some, there's some sample size there for sure. Yeah, right. But seven players in their rotation at 15 points per 36 minutes or higher. So that is impressive balance scoring. Six players total in double figures on a per-game basis. And you just look at kind of the roster construction, right? You have these three versatile bigs uh candace parker who unfortunately has missed a couple games but no reason to think she won't be perfectly fine come playoff time emma misaman azra stevens all three of these bigs can play together which i feel like is so rare in at least this year with kind of uh the league's roster construction this year um having specifically a, a three big rotation where you can only play three bigs you don't have to worry about having a backup power forward and a backup center and all of them just complement each other really well you know that's interesting you bring that up because it when this guy first signed emma misaman uh in the off this past offseason i remember a major question being well is misaman going to start is azari stevens going to start it, it turns out it doesn't really matter um because like you said it, it's almost an afterthought of, of as to who's on the floor um, they can all execute the game plan. They all play to their strengths within the context of the team very well. And in comparison to the other teams we're going to be talking about, who do have some legitimate questions on, you know, how do their front court players complement each other, the Sky, I mean, it's pretty seamless. They run a, a, a three-big rotation, maybe a little bit of four bigs, but, but for all intents and purposes, I think when it comes to the playoffs, they're going to be seeing mostly a three-big rotation. And you don't really lose much when Candace Parker sits or when Emma Mieseman sits, or when Ezra Stevens sits. For the most part, they all contribute in their own unique way, and the team is better for it. 
Yeah, they can all space the floor pretty well. They all have some element of perimeter game to them. You know, there's not really that kind of one strictly paint-bound, kind of back-to-the-basket-only type center. They can all score a little bit. They can all shoot a little bit. Five Um, out. Yeah, exactly. You you really don't lose much in terms of uh, your floor spacing. You know, they, I think, have all been extremely positive defensive players this season. And then you move to... The rest of the roster construction as well. You have three wings in the core of your rotation, Allie Quigley, Kalea Copper, and Rebecca Gardner, who also all can play together and have fairly complementary skill sets as well. You know, you have the two outstanding slashers in Gardner and Copper. Allie Quigley is just a dead bang shooter, one of the best in the league, obviously. And then, you know, the other two can shoot the ball okay. Maybe you worry a little bit about Gardner's spacing in the playoffs, but you have two very good defensive options. All three of these players have had very effective offensive seasons. So, and then obviously the point guards as well, like just extremely well put together, I think. You know, when you talk about the wing rotation, I am maybe a little worried about Rebecca Gardner uh, impacting floor spacing negatively, but that hasn't really, you know, now that I think about it, that hasn't really come to pass for most of the regular season. You know, she's so active out there. It's not like Rebecca Gardner is standing on the wing and not moving around, and teams are just ignoring her, you know? She's really active on the offensive glass. She moves really well without the basketball because that's just required in this Sky offensive system, you know? No one player is standing in any one spot, but their wings in particular, like you said, they're outstanding slashers, both Copper and Gardner, but Gardner in particular, moving without the ball. I mean, she just makes herself available on the baseline there. She loves that playing the baseline, getting those nice cuts to the basket when the defenders have their heads turned. So I think it kind of offsets it. You know, she's not what I would consider to be a knockdown three-point shooter. But when you move well without the basketball and you make yourself available, that kind of offsets it. You know, one thing I might say is that it is just more of like a playoff coaching focus than a regular season coaching focus. You know, you're not really going to kind of totally ignore a non-shooter or, you know, maybe put your center on like a non-shooting guard to kind of create, uh, you know, maximize or or minimize spacing for the offense. But also like because Gardner, all the things that you just said, her moving without the basketball, but also just getting to the rim with the basketball, you know, she probably has more gravity than kind of a a player with her normal, you know, three-point volume because her first step is so amazing. Her finishing around the rim is so amazing. That's true. That's true. Um, and then, of course, you know, the point guards, they have Courtney Vandersloot, who uh, a borderline top 10 player. I think we both had her right around, you know, that eight to 10 range. Julie Aleman probably wish she could or not even could, but would score a little bit more. Shoot and, the ball, yeah. Be, yeah, be a little bit more aggressive in her own offense. But when you have a Julie Aleman and then a, a Dana Evans, you know, these are both very adequate backup point guard options and options with completely different skill sets in terms of the type of backup point guard they are. You know, if you just kind of need a little bit of that microwave score, maybe you go with Dana Evans. If you kind of need more of a facsimile to what Courtney Vandersloot brings you, maybe you go with Julie Aleman. So, you know, the starting five with everyone available and then Stevens and Gardner and then either Julie or Dana Evans off the bench. I I just don't think you're going to find a more well-balanced playoff rotation from top to bottom. And comparing that to a team like Las Vegas that, in my opinion, has the highest ceiling of any top six or top seven players, I think the Sky just really complement each other very well. You know, they may not have any top 
I mean, I, I think the argument could be made that Candace Parker is a top five player. I, I, we both argued that Candace Parker is a top five player in our previous episode, but but, but more so, they don't have like a tier one player. They don't have yeah, like, okay, that's you know that, the best fair. player in the world. They don't have a tier one player, but I think if you look at just the, their offensive scheme, and I, I don't want to throw this term out there, but I will anyway. Their culture. This is the best team in the WNBA at sharing the basketball. They're the best team in the WNBA at hunting efficient shots. And they're arguably the most unselfish team in the WNBA. And, you know, that that can kind of fall by the wayside a little bit when you're in a pressure situation, you know, in close games or in, in playoff situations, you'll have players, you know, maybe press too much or try to overpass. But we've seen this guy consistently come out on top in close games this season. I can only think of a couple instances in which, let's say, the loss to Washington earlier and the loss to New York recently in which, both Candace Parker got a good look at the basket in the waning seconds and just missed a shot. But other than those times, the Sky have had, they've really shown some, I hate to say this, but you know, the, the championship caliber, it's a cliche, but the championship caliber clutch fourth quarter play. You know, they, they don't get rattled. They stick to what they're good at, which is passing the ball around the perimeter and cutting to the basket. And because they're able to do that, I mean, there's really no one way to defend them. What else do you think this team kind of brings with them in terms of playoff strengths? I think just maybe the ability to play a five-out offense. You know, that's maybe not something that any other team... Can any other team in this on this list do that? Uh, I mean, Vegas a little bit. Maybe. Seattle, depending on what their lineup is. Uh, Washington, depending on what their lineup is. No other team can do it all the time, I would say. And Chicago can pretty much do it all the time. And that's pretty much because they have three bigs who can all play out there, right? And they also, they've also got two bigs in Parker and Mieseman who are just outstanding facilitators from the top of the key or basically anywhere, really. Um, and, and that kind of balance as a Sky fan does make me comfortable. And they can all kind of shoot it too. Like you said, you know, they don't really have any, besides Quigley and, and Alamond, they don't really have any players who, you know, like are dead-eye three-point shooters. But I, I mean, you would say Mieseman was before this season where yeah, she shoots 25% that's... from the line and the volume is even more concerning probably than the percentage. You know, it almost seems to me like, I don't know if I'm misremembering Mieseman's game or something because she hasn't played since uh, 2020. Uh, or she took, she, she, should, she took 2021 off, I should say. But she just seems not aggressive at all with her jump shot. I don't know if that's system related because she's got the ball in her hands so often, you know, setting screens and, and making plays for her teammates. But it just doesn't seem like she's aggressive. Even that, that long two. That it's a good, it was a good shot for her, not many other players, but I would be comfortable with Emma Mieseman taking that shot. It seems like the volume is down there, too. And I really would like to see her be a little bit more aggressive with her jump shot. Because in the playoffs, you know, you go up against these really tough front courts, um, Connecticut in particular, I think. You gotta, They're going to be giving you something. And if Mieseman is constantly playing out there, the threat of the jump shot just makes that offense all the more spaced out. Yeah, she's... Below two threes per 36 minutes. And I do think it will be important for her to at least kind of over the course of the playoff run, even if it's just for maybe one series, to kind of get back to her 20%, 25% three-point attempt rate of the 2019 season um, when, of course, she was finals MVP and and Washington won the title. Just for this version of, of kind of the playoff offense to be the best it can be against some of these elite defenses, for her to be you know to kind of show this type of hesitancy i think when you're playing against the very best teams uh i think you're just going to kind of maybe need a little bit more out of her and she's shown that she can do it before so so she she just kind of needs to get back to that i think 
Yeah, but going back to the things that I really like about this team as a contender, 36.3% of their half-court attempts come at the rim, excluding post-ups. That's the highest such frequency of any team in the WNBA. And that's not mostly off of dribble penetration. That's off cuts. That's off basket cuts. And it really just speaks to, once again, how willing this guy are to share the basketball and how often, how willing they are to basically look for each other. You know, like Copper, Vandersloot, Quigley, Garner are all great cutters from the wing. Parker and Miesman, obviously great facilitators from the top of the key. No other WNBA team can really match that. And when it comes to efficient offense, you know, some of the teams we're going to be talking about, they don't really hunt efficient shots as well as Chicago does. I think the patience of this guy offense is, is really key. And again, if you think about a playoff scenario, you know, a situation, a high pressure situation, they just don't take bad shots. And that's, that's a valuable thing to have. This is kind of a very like nebulous way to sort of define what they're doing kind of, but like how many good teams do you remember like who could lead the league in percentage of their points coming from the paint without having like a dominant post-up player. Like, yeah, that's, it's, it's really cool. And that kind of speaks to the beauty of this five out offense. I, you know, Candace Parker can maybe post up, but that's not a, we talk about it all the time. That's not a possession you really want to be going to, at least nobody on this team. I, I asked you before, how many players in this league would you be willing to just dump the ball down into the post every single time? Like three, four, this guy don't have any players like that. But like you said, they're still leading the league in, in, frequency of shots attempted at the rim because they're just so good at screening and cutting and passing from the top of the key. It's, it's a really beautiful offense to watch. So one other thing that I makes me kind of feel confident about this team is that they're pretty well equipped to guard pretty much any star big that they're going to see, you know, in the second round or later. Uh, as we saw in last year's playoffs, like I don't really think a power post is going to kind of overpower Candace Parker. Like, and really the only contender on this list is Bree Jones. And I Parker pretty much erased her last postseason. I don't really think, you know, that type of player, you know, unless it was Fowles or someone like that, you're, you're really going to have to worry about. We saw Emma Miesemann pretty recently guard Brianna Stewart, you know, just about as well as any big kin guard, albeit it was just kind of one regular season game. You know, I think Azra Stevens can maybe give Elena Deladon pretty good contests, you know, in that sort of in-between game of Deladon's where, you know, she can just ball rack so many other defenders. You know, Steven's length, I think, can be pretty important there. In terms of matchups, like, you look at kind of the star bigs up and down the list, like, who who kind of scares you the most as a Sky fan? I'm scared of Asia Wilson. I'm very scared of Asia Wilson. And, you know, that's, I think the Sky have have historically done a decent job on, on Wilson before, but if you think about how Vegas differs now compared to in the past, you know, you pointed this out early in the season. It's not about Asia Wilson shooting threes. It's it's about everyone else around Asia Wilson shooting threes. And when you play her at the five, you put her in situations where she's, you know, the floor is more spaced around her and she's able to get in more one-on-one situations, either in the post or going to the rim. And she has a significant physical advantage over every Chicago big. You know, she's stronger and faster. I think when you talk about Parker taking Bree Jones out of the game or, you know, Miesman doing a good job on Stewart. Stewart is obviously a, a tremendous athlete as well, but there's no individual matchup against Asia Wilson that Chicago can really take advantage of. I kind of saw the same thing when they were playing Indiana, actually, against Melissa Smith, because she she's just too big and too strong and, and too quick for any of the Chicago Yeah, just, just too explosive off the face yeah, Too game. explosive off, the, yeah, just all of the above. The only, I mean, I would still trust Candace Parker to defend Asia Wilson one-on-one in the playoffs, but... You know, I mean, it's it's a big problem when you have a player like that who 
can operate like that in space and get to the free throw line at will. You really have to have a team effort defending a player like that. And, you know, but of, of course, that's with any dominant big. And you saw last year's playoffs, this guy put forth that same kind of effort against John Cole Jones, against Brittany Griner. In some cases, they still got theirs, but it was it was to the detriment of the team that they were facing, right? I'm not sure if you could say the same for Las Vegas. Well, and just like they did against John Quill Jones's Connecticut son, I actually would not put Parker on Asia Wilson one-on-one, or at least this is something I would seriously explore for, for a lot of those early game minutes if they happen to face each other. Like, that's maybe Stevens or Misamin's matchup and— you Just know, like Parker Rome. Have Parker off Dierica Hamby because, you know, if Dierica Hamby is the one that, that beats you, I think that you look at kind of their— they're five players, right? That's the one you want to beat you offensively. So, and yeah. as we've talked about many times, Parker is probably as good as any player in the league at, at kind of, you know, taking advantage of those types of matchups where you are focusing more on the help defense than the individual defense. I will say uh, today, <laughs> we're recording this on, on Sunday the 31st, uh, Brianna Jones was terrific against this guy, but Candace Parker was not playing. So kind of a kind of an important thing there. One other thing I just wanted to kind of talk about before we get into maybe some against cases here is just kind of having like a real late game situation, real defensive specialist at the wing for offense defense that really kind of meaningfully upgrades your defense. You know, I think it might be a concern that they do only have one and and this team kind of has a few questionable perimeter defensive players. Um, But having Rebecca Gardner as that like surefire defensive specialist for defense only possessions, I think is, you know, again, such, such an upgrade for kind of what this team needed in in those situations last year. And if you're comparing it to last year, she's not really taking anything away, relatively speaking, is she? I mean, she can still get on transition. Her defense fuels transition if, if nothing else. And like I said, I don't think teams are really going to be ignoring her. Maybe they change things up in the playoffs and force Rebecca Gardner to shoot. But again, her activity off the basketball is just, she's not going to be denied with her activity. So what would kind of concern you as a Sky fan if we're sort of building a case for, you know, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind would probably have to be the perimeter defense, like you said. Um, Rebecca Gardner is obviously incredible out there. I think she deserves heavy consideration for all defense, uh, WNBA all defensive team. But other than that, I just don't think the Sky have been very good at the point of attack this season. Uh, Copper has her moments. I think she's actually better off the ball than she is on the ball. Vandersloot, she's okay defending point guards. And, you know, going up, up against the rest of the teams in this list, I don't see many matchups where Vandersloot will be at a disadvantage. But obviously you, you can't afford to have Ellie Quigley on the floor for more than 24 or 26 minutes a game because her defense is just that poor. And we've seen James Wade, like, just close games with Rebecca Gardner several times now this season. So that obviously is something that concerns him as well. So perimeter defense is one of the things that I'm concerned about. Granted, that's maybe not the biggest deal if you have really good help defenders, which this guy do, but it could be something that that could be an issue because this guy have such a hard time keeping teams away from the rim. I think part of that is, you know, lousy transition defense or allowing teams to get out in transition. But another part of it is just having trouble containing dribble penetration. Are there any of these other teams here that we're going to be talking about that you feel like, you know, projecting forward, you feel like you're going to want Rebecca Gardner closing games more times than not over Allie Quigley? Las Vegas comes to mind immediately. Other than that, I don't know, because like Seattle, you could probably, it depends on if, like, if they're closing with Gabby Williams, you can be like, okay, <laughs> you know, whatever. Maybe Washington. Uh... I mean, even if they're not closing with Gabby Williams, like, are, are you 
that terrified of Steph Talbot posting you up, you know, no, like game not situations. Really. It, it, no, not really. No. So maybe perimeter defense, like maybe that's when we're talking about this list in particular with, as it, as it pertains to contenders, maybe that's not as important. I don't know. I mean, but this team does give up a ton of dribble penetration. Like their opponents are getting within five feet at pretty much the highest rate in the WNBA. So obviously that stems from allowing guard penetration, right? So it's interesting because they also allow the lowest frequency of three point attempts. So you've got to take something away. And I feel like that's almost, I don't want to say a conscious decision because a conscious decision to allow guards to get into the paint would not be a very good one, but there's got to be some kind of link there, doesn't there? Yeah, sure. So maybe just playing the math game a little bit. And I do think a lot of it is just, you know, and this is another concern for me that they allow a ton of transition opportunities defensively. They are top four in the league. They're the only team that we're going to be talking about that's top four in terms of proportion of possessions they allow in transition. So, you know, transition possessions are, uh, as we talk about all the time, uh, very high efficient looks. So uh, allowing them is a bad thing. And this team allows them a lot. I also think the Sky are kind of lacking in the athleticism department. Obviously, Kalia Copper and Rebecca Gardner are two of the most athletic wing players in the league. And I think Vandersloot is is pretty athletic for her position as well. But uh, other than that, it gets kind of dicey. It's just one of those situations I could see the Sky going through stretches where they just get physically overwhelmed out there, whether that be on the glass, allowing dribble penetration, or failing to dribble penetrate. Like like their defense, it's more about just depending on sharp rotations and communication. There's really not much margin for error out there. Like they're a good defensive team. I don't think they're a lockdown defensive team like some other teams on this list. So I could see their lack of physical advantages almost I could see it being the decider in a game honestly so in the commissioner's cup uh Vegas I thought did a really great job at kind of walling off the rim for Kalea Copper and I think if teams are able to limit her effectiveness finishing at the rim the shooting around her and her passing specifically I think is not so elite as you know you really kind of feel confident that they'll be able to take advantage of that if if you can kind of I mean because Kalea Copper is you know what sort of unlocked everything for this team's playoff run last year. You know, she won finals MVP, obviously. Um, But even in that Connecticut series, you know, she was the most unstoppable player on the court. So if you're able to limit the effectiveness of of her getting all the way to the rim and finishing at the rim, that that is a kind of a huge element of really what can make this offense go. Uh, Because I, I don't really think, you know, we mentioned that everybody on this team can shoot, but I think they are a little bit light on like dead bang shooters, like players that you know, are kind of like, oh, no, shooters, if, if you're a defense, you know, Vandersloot, Copper, Stevens, Parker, like these are all fine shooters, you know, they can get to 35, 38% over a season, but they're not like instilling panic in you, right? I think that's a, a big reason why you want Miesman shooting the ball more often, right? Yeah, because she does kind of have that upside of uh, a dead bang shooter. And, and she's, you know, had a 50, 40, 90 season before, even if it doesn't count. Even if it's not a three-pointer, because she's so good at moving without the ball. So if a defense is walling off Kalia Copper, basically, it'll be there. Yeah, and I do think Emma Mieseman is, you know, maybe the best mid-range shooter in the WNBA, I would say. She's really good, yeah. I do think you just kind of go through these teams, and I, I don't really know if there's any matchup where they would have the best player in the series, and I think that's a little reductive to kind of bring it to that. But I do think, you know, you look at before the sky last year, the best player in the world won the title no fewer than three years in a row. So 
having the best player in the world, it's pretty important when those players are healthy and available. I could still see a situation in which Candace Parker is the best player on the floor. Like, if, if, if I am in a Game 5 of a deciding series in the WNBA Finals, I want Candace Parker on my team. But I can see what you're saying. Like, there's no Elena Deladon, there's no Brianna Stewart, there's no Asia Wilson, nobody who can kind of will their team to victory, at least on offense. So I, I can see where that concern is, is valid. Yeah, that kind of late in a series playoff bucket when you just, like, you really, you know, you, you want one of those players because you've played this team five times. Like, system buckets aren't really yeah. cutting yeah. it anymore. Uh, maybe Copper can carry that magic from last year. You know, Vandersloot has had a good season in terms of like clutch scoring i i don't really think there's a lot to that in such a small sample size of the WNBA season when you know there's only 30 something games and you're only taking samples from the last five minutes when they're within five points like the the samples are just so so small when you're kind of talking about who's a good clutch scorer and everything like that but i mean vandersuit you know did kind of squash some of those playoff demons in terms of kind of like late game execution last year right that's true. I remember very vividly in that last game against the Mercury that uh, that tur- little turnaround jump shot in the lane that kind of sealed the deal there, and also the dribble, dribble penetration and drop off to Stephanie Dolson. So yeah, still fresh in my mind. Anything else in terms of like you know what kind of scares you for this team, or you know even just things that you could see maybe not going too well uh, against the best teams? I think maybe defensively, like I said, I think I already I think I already talked about this, but defensively they are so dependent on this chaotic, somewhat chaotic hedging scheme or trapping scheme. The the defensive connectivity, I feel like. The is connectivity, really that, that that's a good term for it. And like I said, I've said this before, but I normally really don't like stuff like that because it it can almost put you in a in, in a disadvantageous situation because the back line of the defense has to be so sharp and, and so in tune when you have Candace Parker in your team that doesn't matter because she's such a brilliant defensive player but if that gets taken away and you have situations in which like okay well we got to switch on this or we got to go under the screen on that we got to play a drop defense then I might be a little concerned because um, it's interesting you know I'll use Emma Mieseman as an example here because it's it's fascinating how much better she is when she's like moving her feet within a hedge or a trap versus how bad she is on a switch. You know what I'm saying? I don't think that's going to be like the deciding factor of a game, but it is something to be concerned about, I think. Yeah, I don't really like any of these bigs switching. I mean, even Candace Parker for all of her brilliance, I, I don't think that's kind no, of she's the, passed that. The, yeah. the best use of her defensively. And they did do a lot of that pretty recently. I, I think it was Vegas in, in the Commissioner's Cup. So we'll see. You know, maybe that was just kind of wanting to see how it looked or, or maybe it was the opposite, not wanting to kind of show how they were really going to guard Vegas in, in high leverage moments. But I don't know, man, if I'm playing for $500,000, I'm, I'm putting it all, I'm putting it all out there, but we, we don't know. Uh, let's move on to Vegas. Uh, I think 30 minutes on one team is probably <laughs> enough here. Probably a little more than enough. Yeah. Vegas, where they are uh, record wise and, and kind of everything else. Okay. So they are one game behind the sky in the standings. They are first in offense, sixth in defense, they're four and five against the rest of these teams. Five and five if, if you include the Commissioner's Cup. They've got four games remaining against teams above 500, two against Seattle, one against the Mystics, and one against the Sky. Steven, what makes the Aces a contender? Well, we talked about the Sky having kind of like the best sort of eight player rotation, the most balanced eight player playoff rotation. This is like the best, kind of most top heavy team in the league. I think the most talented starting five in the league pretty easily to me. I, I don't know if you would agree with that or disagree with that. Definitely but, agree. Yeah. 
you know, statistically, they're not quite as dominant as the Sky starting five or the Storm starting five, just in terms of their net rating. But, you know, the depth of just scoring talent they have in this five, driving, passing, shooting, I think is pretty unparalleled, kind of what they're able to do out there. And it kind of extends to the shot creation on the roster. How many players on these on this Aces team can you put the ball in their hands and you can say, go get a good bucket? You know, go get to your spot and get manufacture a good shot. It's the playmaking ability on this team is pretty unrivaled. And it's one that can basically just neutralize any defense you're looking to play against them. You you can play top-tier defense, mistake-free defense against the Aces and still give up 90 points because their offensive players are just that dynamic. You know, they have a number of players that can create high leverage, like high value looks in half court or in transition. And also a number of players that can convert very high difficulty looks and just like multiple players in on this team can check both of those boxes. And I think that's not really that common when you go up and down, you know, the five teams that we're talking about, like how many teams have three guards who can create easy looks as well as like just make extremely difficult looks and all those extremely difficult looks that these players can make are of different varieties. You know, for Chelsea Gray, it's the fadeaway kind of 18 footer, you know, Kelsey Plum, maybe it's more of the step back three, Jackie Young, it's that high contested sort of in between mid range pull up two. they're not really too reliant on one thing, even though they, they take a lot of jump shots, obviously. Uh, and they are kind of the, the most quote unquote jump shot reliant team. Uh, I, I don't really worry about that too much, but just being able to kind of have so many, and that's not even mentioning Asia Wilson, you know, uh, maybe going to be MVP this season, uh, just in terms of like their guard play and, and kind of perimeter skills who, who can check both of those boxes of creating easy looks and making difficult ones when easy looks are not available is uh, unparalleled, I think, again. And in the playoffs, those easy looks probably aren't, aren't going to be as available, right? You talk about playoff basketball, oh, the game slows down, the defense not the de- defense turns up, you're still going to have those players who can, like I said, shoot over defense, make the defense null and void. It's very terrifying as a fan of another team, I'll tell you. This team is also going to get to the free throw line. I know they're all the way down to fourth in free throw attempt rate, uh, missing the days of Bill or perhaps. but It's negligible, those differences. Yeah, all those teams are within like 1% of each other. But they have Asia Wilson, and she in particular is going to get you you know, eight to 10 free throw attempts in every single playoff game that she's playing in, especially now with kind of the improved spacing and room for her to work. You know, they just have one of those players, like one of the very best tier one players who you can just rely on late in games. The thing that we just said that maybe Chicago may or may not be lacking, like go get you a bucket or go get us to the free throw line. Go win this game. When there's 40 seconds left in the game. So I think that's extremely important, especially when you combine that with the perimeter scoring that they have here. A big reason, again, why I, I believe in this team is they just have contrast it to Connecticut. They just have multiple players who can score on their own defender off the dribble. And I think that, you know, when you don't have that, when you're missing that, maybe you can churn out a couple good regular seasons. And I I just think, you know, it, it really shows up when you actually have guards who can force defensive rotations through dribble penetration and then make a play for yourself or others. Steven, isn't it interesting? You look at the WNBA and you, we think of think back to our top 10 players exercise. You're like, okay, how many players did you have in the top 10 who were bigs? But when we talk about the real difference makers in a playoff series, it's about how many great playmaking guards you have. 
Well, yeah, because all, all of these teams basically have one of those bigs, right? They, those bigs were like well represented on just about every team. So when you actually can differentiate yourself through guard play. That's you know, a difference maker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This team's just sheer volume of transition. You know, I, I don't think quote unquote playoff basketball when the game slows down is really going to do anything to really slow them down. Like this team is number one in transition frequency. Uh, of course, they are easily like the highest mark of any of these teams. The only team in their neighborhood is Atlanta. They have five players over 60 possessions total in transition, which is just incredible. Uh, And Kelsey Plum and Jackie Young alone combining for 200 transition possessions just between the two of them. So when you're able, I guess, you know, maybe you can worry about the defense and I'm sure we'll get to that. But when you leverage so much of the most efficient offense so frequently, you're going to just have a lot easier time scoring the ball than some of these other offenses that are, you know, kind of middle of the pack league wide. They're definitely playing the math game on offense. And I would say that they're playing the math game on defense too. So under our against uh, category and notes here, we have defense, which I think is a valid concern for the aces. But if you look at the approach, I think the approach is good because uh, according to Link's data, they have the, the aces are allowing the lowest proportion of field goals in the league from one to five feet from the basket and the second highest proportion from 16 to 21 feet so you always talk about you want teams to take a lot of long twos and you want to limit attempts in the paint the aces are still doing that it's just opponents are converting a lot of those inefficient shots along the same lines according to synergy they're actually allowing the highest proportion of off dribble jump shots to any team in the league but they're allowing the second highest points per possession on those. So, I mean, maybe it, maybe it's that more of those shots off the dribble are coming from behind the three-point line. But, I mean, I think the Aces' opposing shot diet is good. You know, I, I could see this, you know, maybe they're having uh, season-long bad shooting luck out there. I mean, it is possible, right? Well, well, that's what the numbers would indicate, at least. Because that's op- what the numbers would indicate. Opponents are shooting the third highest percentage league-wide from above the break threes compared to any other team, and the second highest percentage from non-paint twos. So, you know, if you're forcing a lot of non-paint twos and teams are hitting them, you know, tip your cap. But you're still doing the right things, I think. Yeah, so I, I would say that's a strength of this team. You know, I know their defensive numbers. Like, like I think in this case, this is a good uh, example of results being not necessarily indicative of the, of the process. Because, like, their, their opposing shot diet is good. It's just that opponents are hitting low-efficiency shots at higher efficiency than you'd expect. So, Any other, like, just any other strengths, any other four, uh, anything else in the four category we should talk about before I move on to? This, this to me, strikes me as a team that, like, there's not a lot of different reasons to be optimistic, but the reasons there but are... the reasons to be optimistic are just so convincing. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is a very kind of short list of data points that we have in this section, but, you know, I still feel as good as any other team about Vegas winning the, the title, essentially. Yeah, I agree. What do you have against them? I mean, you know, it is the defense, right? They are one of the only teams that we're going to talk about that just never force any turnovers. And they do allow a ton of threes, which they always have. And that, I think, works a lot better in the regular season. Well, that got them in trouble last year in the playoffs, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. So it works when you're playing, you know, the dream and the fever and all these kind of bad offenses a few times a year. Um, But when you're playing, you know, real offenses allowing a ton of threes against teams that can actually make them, you know, it, it might come back to bite you. One third of uh, opponents field goal attempts are, are three, which I think you had already mentioned here. Again, I feel like so much of their kind of cons, I guess, are, are very obvious. The lineup versatility, right? They are so thin in terms of 
options that they can go with. They don't really, other than shifting Asia from the five to the four and playing with a more traditional big, like you don't really have any other kind of options that you can go to. Like the five that they have, and then maybe Raquana Williams instead of one of those five to give you more shooting, then that's really all you got. How do you think, how do you assess the concerns of their bench? Because I can go both ways on this. Um, you know, you don't need a, a, a true nine or 10 player rotation to win in the playoffs because everyone's you're just going to be playing your best players more often, I would hope. But it is a concern in certain situations for me. Say, you know, someone gets into foul trouble or if there's a, a bad injury, uh, God forbid, who is stepping up? In, well, I mean, in fact, all, even all these teams are one bad injury away from just not competing. Of course, yeah, I guess that's that, that was a silly thing to say. But let me put it this way. In the minutes you need to spell your starters, can you avo- can this Aces team just avoid bleeding points? I mean, they basically have like six and a half playoff players, right? Like you have one player off the bench that you feel can be a decent playoff like you you feel good about them in the playoffs and a couple question marks like maybe Ileana Rupert can contribute but I think she might get overwhelmed defensively Stokes obviously is going to kill your offense probably Plaisance is going to kill your defense so just the number of good players they have is not very high but like you compare them to a team that we're going to talk about the Washington Mystics Washington probably has more good players than the Las Vegas Aces but when Natasha Cloud comes off the bench, like they don't have any other initiators. Like they might go nine deep, but they don't have the functional. The Aces can still play two of Chelsea Gray and Jackie Young and Kelsey Plum and have two very good offensive initiators on the court basically at all times. Where Washington, you so worry about kind of what they can do to drive efficient offense in the minutes that Elena Deladon and or Natasha Cloud aren't out there. It's depth versus functional depth, right? That's that's the name of the game here. And, and even in, in the backcourt, I feel fine if Kelsey Plum is playing point guard. I would feel fine if Chelsea Gray is playing point guard. So there's some, I think, versatility in the backcourt at least that would kind of render this concern null and void. We'll see what happens. We'll see if the... Uh, I think some Aces fans have been a little concerned about the season-long grind kind of wearing on this team, and that's that was evident in their defensive effort. I do agree that I think their defense hasn't really been providing as much just as, at least as much resistance as it has in years past. But like you've been saying, when you get into the playoffs, you don't need an eight or nine player rotation. You just need as many good players as you as you can, as many elite players as you can put out there. And compared to the rest of teams on this list, I think the Aces have the most. One other concern I wanted to get to about this team is that they probably do only have one plus perimeter defender. You know, the opposite side of that is I'm not sure how many of their potential opponents have multiple perimeter options you worry about killing you probably just one it's it's probably just the sky right Um, yeah that's true but i can see maybe dribble penetration becoming a problem for this team defensively and kind of having to force those rotations a little bit earlier and and more rotations and kind of forcing the bigs to to sell out in the paint and those three-point attempts that they give up so many of uh you know kind of the math just working against their favor there is so much on jackie young's shoulders when it comes to defense I know Asia Wilson is the one on this team who's getting consideration for Defensive Player of the Year, and don't get me wrong, she's had a very good defensive season. But in terms of value to the team, I mean, Jackie Young is extremely valuable on the defensive end because they just don't really have any other good perimeter defenders. And I think Chelsea Gray has like a good team defender, but that doesn't mean that she's going to be able to prevent dribble penetration. Anything else here? I think, you know, this one's kind of uh, an easy one, but one that 
real real serious strengths and weaknesses. I think. Yeah, their, their strengths and weaknesses are just so obvious. There's really not much room for nitpicking here. Um, should we move on? Yeah. What are we looking at for the Connecticut Sun record-wise? Okay, so the Connecticut Sun are 20-10 and 10 as of July 31st. They're third in both offense and defense, and they have a perfect 500 record, 6-6 six and six against the rest of these teams. They've only got one remaining against an above 500 team. That is another game against the Sky. Steven, your Connecticut Sun, what do they have going for them? They are uh, pretty good still. They have going for them that they only have one game remaining against the rest of these teams, so they Yo, might... Yo, I wish you could see this. Our notes are so heavily against the Sun. Steven is, is, is not very optimistic about his Sun. Uh, well, here's what they do well. They still play defense at a very high level. In doing so, they propel this offense that I think you could have concerns about otherwise because... They force a ton of turnovers. Uh, they are leading the league in opposing turnover rate, and they get out in transition. Um, they have four players over 60 transition possessions. Uh, we just talked about Vegas having five, but Washington has none. Seattle only has two. So they have um, a balanced transition attack, and, and they do it just about as much as any other team that we're going to talk about. And I think, you know, this is somehow a good defense and, and somehow a good offense, even though there's a lot of offensive players I don't like and a lot of defensive players that I don't really think are, are really all that good. But Well, something they're doing has been working because they've been putting together seasons like this for a long time now, but hasn't really manifested in the playoffs. The other thing they're, that they're going to do well... I mean, is, granted, they, they, they were 20 minutes from winning a title in 2019, so I, I take that back. But they're going to put a ton of pressure on the rim They by playing through their bigs, uh, John Quell Jones and Brianna Jones. Brianna Jones maybe having a second-team all-WNBA type season as a bench player is just ridiculous what she's able to do. Almost half of their points come in the paint, and they're going to get to the line. Brianna Jones specifically, their big specifically, their three-big rotation is extremely talented. Like You're not going to find, I don't think, a better, more talented three big rotation than Alyssa Thomas, John Quo Jones, and Brianna Jones. I agree. Their rebounding remains their bread and butter, I think. And I know you hate that, but I need to say it. Uh, today, against the Chicago Sky, I have no clue how the Sky won that game because the Sun had 16 offensive rebounds to the Sky's one. That's quite the disparity. And that's not really a fluke either. I mean, the Sun have some really darn good offensive rebounders. Of course, once again, you have to ask, is that going to translate to the playoffs? Last year, it didn't. Well, it happened this year, Stephen. Well, what else does this team have going for them? Obviously, my notes were, were pretty short, um, but the, the things that we mentioned, I think, are very important, particularly that they're able to turn their opponents over at such a high rate and get out in transition. But, you know, what else is this team really good at? Why, why would they be able to make a big run? Um, they have Alyssa Thomas. And this is interesting because I always say that she's a fascinating player in her strengths and weaknesses because she takes away so much from your half-court offense, but she adds so much to your transition offense and, and your defense. We have seen Alyssa Thomas in the past just put the Connecticut Sun on her back and post some ridiculous stat lines, particularly in that 2019 final series against the Washington Mystics. I think she can still do that. You know, we don't have her as a tier one player, as you've been saying, but she is very capable of, you know, going on a personal six-nothing, eight-nothing run and like I said, just putting together a extremely well-rounded, high-volume stat line. The question I have about that, however, is what does that look like in, in the context of, well, we need both Bree Jones and John Cole Jones on the floor? Yeah, that's the thing, man. All the good things that you can say about this team come with a huge, like, but... 
Okay, well, well, let's get into it then. Let's get into it then. Why, why are you concerned? Well, I mean, I'm concerned for a number of reasons, but to kind of just piggyback off what you were just saying, it's really hard for this team to just maximize the talent that they have on this team because their three best players can't play at the same time against the very best teams. Like you have, you know, you have a power forward in Alyssa Thomas, a center in Bree Jones, and a power forward slash center in Jonquil Jones. Like it's extremely hard to maximize all of those players playing, you know, 30 plus minutes a game without playing one of them gravely out of position and sacrificing a lot of other things on the basketball court. Okay, so to your point, one thing I want to mention here is that the Suns' most used lineup, which is Bonner, Thomas, John Cole Jones, Courtney Williams, and Atisha Heideman, their most used lineup actually has a negative net rating. It's negative 0.3. Whoa, so is that true? Is, yeah. And yeah. they just they just kill people when Brianna Jones is on the floor. Isn't that interesting? Brianna Jones... Lineups with their their starting lineup with Brianna Jones or their starting four with Brianna Jones has been much more effective than their starting uh, four with Jonquil Jones. And I think if you subbed Jonquil Jones for Alyssa Thomas, you'd, you'd probably get the same thing. Uh, if those lineups have even once you get into bench lineups like that, you're talking about like 35 minutes. Somehow, yeah, the sample size the sample size just isn't there. But what, what I'm saying like, how many of these other teams can you say that about? Your starting lineup is getting outscored per 100 possessions. And that's very interesting for this team specifically where, you know, before this season... Because like, historically, their yeah. starting lineup was running roughshod over everybody. And they were playing, like, the most minutes in the league by, you know, twofold, essentially. Very um, interesting, yeah. Um, so that, I think, is sort of the conundrum in this team. And I, there's a lot more that I want to talk about for this team's weaknesses outside of the three big rotation. But that, to me, is kind of the most important thing. Who do you think is, is the closing bigs, the, the closing duo of bigs, or... Would you even try to play Alyssa Thomas at either the three or the one? To me, the answer to the second question is is an easy no. I, I don't think you can really get away That's with that. That's just such a weird lineup. And I think, interestingly, that lineup does have like a very positive net rating. But like you said, the sample size is just minuscule. So, um, And also, how would that lineup score against the half-court defense? Like, what is that giving you? Just yeah, because you have no guards that you trust? Some of these elite defenses like Seattle or Washington, like there's just no, no they're, they're, they're just going to take that away, yeah. So, I mean, what do you think? John Quo Jones, I mean, she's the, the reigning MVP. She hasn't really been closing fourth quarters recently, but you would think that she's kind of a shoe-in to close, you know, the most high-leverage games that there are here in the playoffs. Who do you think would be the closing big alongside her? It's going to be Alyssa Thomas. In fact, I think the more pertinent question is who's going to be the closing big alongside Alyssa Thomas. I don't think... Wow. That, yeah, I mean, I don't think... Okay, this is maybe on the outside looking in here, and I don't really have much to back this up, at least empirically, but... I think Alyssa Thomas is their franchise player. John Cole Jones may be their best player, but Alyssa Thomas is their franchise player. I don't think you're going to see a playoff game in which Alyssa Thomas is just is not closing. I'll use today's game again as an example. Late in the fourth quarter, uh, they were closing with Alyssa Thomas and Bree Jones. In overtime, they went with Alyssa Thomas and John Cole Jones. So and they I, closed, I don't know. They closed that recent Seattle game with John Cole Jones on the bench with Alyssa Thomas and Bree Jones as well. So they, for Thomas, some reason, for some reason, they are willing to bench the reigning MVP and, in my opinion, the best player of the three, in order to keep Alyssa Thomas on the floor. And I know I just said, yeah, they've got Alyssa Thomas, they've got a chance to win, you know, whatever game they're in. But that is just, oh. 
I mean, I think this is a very disagreeable opinion that I'm going to say, but I think you you it. can easily make a case that Alyssa Thomas is a better defender than John Quill Jones, a better defender, a more versatile defender. You know, maybe not. I agree with that. Maybe not the defender that you would want in every single situation over John Quill Jones, but you know, more often than not, she's she's just a better team defender, uh, a better playmaker. You know, kind of turning defense into offense. And also, I think you can make a case that Brianna Jones is a better offensive player than John Quill Jones. So. I think that one's a little bit harder to kind of make the case. And I, I don't even necessarily think it's true. But what I, I do definitely think is true is that Brianna Jones is more of a offensive floor raiser than John Quill Jones. You know, John Quill Jones would probably maximize really good guards better than Brianna Jones. You know, you'd rather have John Quill Jones next to, you know, Skylar Diggins-Smith or Kelsey Plum or something like that and really kind of get clicking with, with great offensive talent. But when you don't have great offensive talent and you need baskets late in the game, uh, and you need kind of someone to to run your offense through. Maybe you're Brianna, not going to John Cole Jones. I think Brianna Jones is a better player in that situation. I definitely see where you're coming from on that because last year in particular, how John Cole Jones was made like invisible through most of that Chicago series, and that shouldn't be the case. I mean, you could be, you could blame the spacing around her, you could blame Melissa Thomas, the fit, whatever. Um, but I mean, it is a valid concern because we have seen it before, and I think we continue to see it this season. So it sounds to me like you're saying that this is going to be a matchup dependent. I mean, for me, I really have a hard time not seeing John Quill Jones close playoff games. So I agree. It, it would be matchup dependent for me. I think Vegas, where the closing bigs are Derek Hamby and Asia Wilson, that to me is a pretty good Alyssa John Quill matchup. Alyssa has had some pretty good success in the playoffs against Dierica Hamby, John Quill Jones, very good defensive matchups against Asia Wilson in the past. You don't worry about kind of getting killed on the glass, you know, like you sometimes might with Alyssa on the floor because she's a little bit undersized. They can defend Vegas a little bit better in transition with this lineup. You know, I would still try to get a decent amount of Bree Jones against the Asia Hamby front court, though, and, and maybe have JJ shade off of Hamby, like we talked about before with Candace Parker, but also just have Bree Jones maybe try to put some pressure on Asia defensively, maybe pick up a couple falls on her. Yeah, uh, you know, she's maybe one of the only players in the league that could probably put Asia in the goal a few times uh, with how, how strong Asia is. Against Chicago, what, what do you think? Who do you think is the better choice against Chicago? Because I, I think it's probably Alyssa Thomas again. I agree. I agree. And, and that in particular, I think Alyssa Thomas is versus the, the style of offense Chicago wants to play. I think Alyssa Thomas, that defensive versatility would just come in much more handy than John Quell and Brianna Jones just being kind of paint bound there. Washington, particularly if they're closing with one of their traditional centers, uh, but maybe even if they're not, I, I think this is more of a Bree Jones series because I think Connecticut could have a really hard time scoring in the half court against this elite defense of Washington. And and I don't really think they have an answer for Brianna Jones. Uh, and you, you just might need kind of her playing through the post a little bit more through Brianna Jones. And if they are playing with one of those centers, you know, I don't really think any of those centers are, are going to kill you too much, but, but I think either way you want John Quill Jones guarding Elena Deladon and, and not Alyssa Thomas guarding Elena Deladon. Cause I think this is, you know, one of the few players that she's just going to get ball. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, just going to shoot right over the top of her. Maybe it, it becomes a little bit of a tougher choice. Uh, if my Heinz Allen is the one closing, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think that one's a little bit tougher, but I think maybe because of the defense, you probably might still go with because of how good Washington's defense is, I'm saying, and, and how much you're just going to need scoring, maybe you, you still go with Bree Jones there. Why is this such an issue? I mean, I'm trying to put this into perspective here. You said the th the most talented three big 
trio of any of these teams, and we're, we're framing this as a huge negative. Well, I mean, it's a negative because you have, you know, 80 minutes to fill between these two positions in a situation where you probably want to fill 100 minutes. You know, you probably want these three players playing 100 total minutes and you only have 80 to fill. So you're, well, you're just okay, not let's... able to maximize the talent that you have here. Okay, hang on. How about this? When we were talking about Chicago, the first thing we talked about Chicago, we said, okay, no problem switching these players in and out of the lineup. You're going to get a great 80 minutes no matter who is on the floor. They complement each other very well. I don't think you can say the same about this. Well, I do think they that they complement each other well, but I mean, Azra Stevens isn't the sky's third best player. Like you're not kind of having your total reliancy of talent isn't so concentrated in these three positions in oh, Chicago. Okay, okay. I think, I, I think I, that, I that's the bigger difference to me because I think, I mean, you know, obviously just on paper, like Alyssa Thomas and Brianna Jones don't, you know, you, you worry about like floor spacing or whatever intuitively, but it's still like a very effective combination. But to me, it's more just like, you know, they, they don't have good enough players everywhere else to kind of have your three best players playing essentially the same position. Along those lines, which starting guard duo or which 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 guard tandem do you think would best maximize if they have to, you know, go with some weird three big lineup? Who do you want out there the most? I mean, I, I feel like the one that is just going to be like the sacrificial lamb is Natisha Heideman because she just has like the least amount of franchise equity for some really? reason. Um, but she's the only one that can shoot. Like to me, she has to be out there. Like they don't have any other players that are actually going to put up good three point volume. I have a hard time seeing Dewana Bonner not closing games, but she, she might be, I mean, obviously for me, Courtney Williams would not be a lock to close games, but I just have a hard time seeing them. I think she's had a very poor year defensively. Yeah, and you, for me, the, the the concern with Courtney Williams is always her shooting you out of games. This team is so reliant on their front court success. You have a player taking twenty shots a game and scoring fifteen points on those shots. It's like, well, that's driving your offense down. And if she's not giving you anything on defense, well, that's that's an issue. Yeah, I mean, pretty much the only three teams in the league that are taking twenty five percent of their half court jump shots from seventeen feet to the three point line are. Two bottom four teams in Los Angeles and Indiana and the Connecticut mm-hmm. Sun. And that's, I mean, that's not really Alyssa Atlanta's Thomas. Not on there? No, Atlanta's not on there, amazingly. That's enough. surprising. But that's Courtney Williams. You know, she is going to kind of seek out as much as she can the worst shots in basketball, and she's going to hit them at, you know, 38, 40, 42%. So it's it's not very good. Uh, and then, like you said, she's she's just a completely different player defensively than she was when she was here in, in 2019, where she was, I would say, a positive defensive player, and now she's a negative defensive player. Going beyond just simply Courtney Williams, I think this team is also lacking playmaking in the backcourt. So much of their playmaking is going through Alyssa Thomas and maybe a little bit of Dewana Bonner. I wouldn't say much Dewana Bonner, but Heidemann, you don't consider to be a playmaker. Courtney Williams can, but that's not really her role on this team. I don't see them putting the ball in Nia Cloudin's hands in a playoff situation. Dijanae Carrington is pretty much exclusively a, a play finisher. Unfortunately, that, that Bria Hartley injury is really could impact them negatively in this, in this playoff situation. Yeah, I mean, I think, amazingly enough, Courtney Williams is probably their best playmaker in the backcourt or, you know, maybe their best playmaker in total outside of Alyssa Thomas. You know, maybe you could say Bree Jones as well. But um, in terms of, like, doing something off the dribble, they don't really have much in terms of really high value passing outside of Courtney Williams. 
uh, which, you know, she's underrated at, I would say, but not enough to kind of make up for everything else that we just talked about. It's just, it's just not her role. Like, how often do they put the ball in Courtney Williams' hands in the pick and roll, you know? And she's just going to pull up from... Exactly, exactly. That's, that's not going to happen anyway. So, okay, we need to wrap this up, I think. Any uh, closing thoughts on this one? Well, I just have a couple other things that uh, we should get to. One, one thing that um, Kayla Dos Santos of The Lead had kind of reminded me of when I asked her what she thought about strengths and weaknesses for this team, just kind of guarding the most athletic perimeter options, like Angel McCartry two years ago, Kalea Copper last year. Like, those players just absolutely left Dewana Bonner in the dust. Like, if you match up Dewana Bonner with you know, like a Benajelani type, a player who's going to kind of more like work to their spots, you know, try to get to the in-between game maybe, or, or just really shiftiness getting to the rim rather than explosiveness. Like Bonner can still hold up pretty well against those types of players, but she Jackie just can't hang athletically against, you know, like uh, Kalea Copper, for example, who she couldn't hang athletically with last year. Uh, and then just overall point of attack defense. Like I don't think they don't have a player that you would want guarding Kelsey Plum or Courtney Vandersloot or, or even Natasha Cloud, really, with how strong she can get to the rim. I really miss watching Jasmine Thomas play basketball. Yeah, we, we miss her. We miss her so. Okay, anything else? Uh, coaching? <laughs> I think Kurt Miller is probably the worst coach of, of this group. Maybe. Maybe it's, I mean, it, it's up for debate, but uh, I, I don't feel good about that area of their game. I almost think he he's kind of... GM'd himself into a corner where there's really not. What else can he do with this coaching this group? Well, when you're down three, you could not have Alyssa Thomas and Brianna Jones in the game at the same time. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> a good point. That's a good example. Um, uh, I mean, we we do have historically in recent history, like the Sun basically got schemed out of the playoffs by James Wade in the Sky last season. So. Yeah, so, I mean, the other thing that they've had, like, just a ton of shooting luck uh, this year. Their opponents are shooting, like, the second lowest percent from three league-wide, so you could see some regression coming that way. I mean, how do you feel about this team? Like, do you think this is a serious contender? We, we can wrap up just kind of with your thoughts as of them actually, you know, making the finals. You know, I don't want to bet against them because we have recently seen them make the finals in seasons where, in a season where, like, they were not favored to do so. But I almost feel like... Looking back on that, they've just they've just peaked. How much more can they squeeze out of this awkward three big, three headed monster of, of a lineup, in which you're also down your best perimeter defender and your best probably your best perimeter playmaker as well? I think the rest of the league has I don't want to say caught on, but it's like the Sun have kept the same formula of success that has, to their credit, worked very well in the regular season for many years now. But I don't think it's a coincidence they keep they keep getting bounced in the playoffs. So of the teams that we're discussing, I, I can't put them any higher than fourth out of five. How about you? Uh, yeah, I would say five out of five. But I'm five out of five. Okay. Ever the uh, pessimist. Let's move on to the Seattle Storm. How are they looking? Alrighty. Okay. So the Seattle Storm are nineteen and twelve on the season. Currently the fourth seed. Clinch the playoffs as the rest of the te- these teams have obviously. Um, they're seventh in offense. Somewhat surprisingly, maybe. But second in defense, not at all surprising. They're three and five against the rest of these teams on this list. They have three games remaining against teams above 500. That's two against Las Vegas and one against Chicago. Steven, I think their four case is pretty clear here. Uh, they've got a really good defense. A really, really elite defense. Uh, their former starting group, I guess, uh, now that we've had, I guess, what is it, four games now with Tina Charles in the starting lineup. The, the former starting group with Ezzie Magbiger. You know, you can look at four really plus playoff defenders. You know, Sue Bird, the the odd player out there, is not 
an amazing one-on-one defensive player, but she's still, I think, a pretty effective team defender given all of her physical limitations uh, and a pretty effective scheme defender for this team. And there's just so much surrounding talent, two through five, with that old group that I think is still going to see a lot of playoff minutes. Other than the absolute best back-to-the-basket post centers, you know, other than Sylvia Fowles and maybe Brianna Jones, like there's not really too much you kind of worry about uh, maybe now Elena Deladon, uh, too much, you know, what can this team not stop? Do you think that's fair to say? That's very fair to say. And I'm going to take that one step further and say they can not only stop pretty much every team, but they can turn them over too. Yep. They, I mean, the combination of forcing a ton of turnovers um, and never falling number one in opposing free throw attempt rate while they also force a ton of turnovers, like to be that disciplined with your scheme like last year the sparks forced a ton of turnovers they were number one but they also put they their, the time. yeah their opponents on the line in in kind of the bottom four range there so it, it's just really impressive kind of how they're able to execute their scheme aside from you know going zone for a few games too and i wonder if they'll go back to that after this kind of two game road stand uh against the mystics where i think they kind of want to see a little bit more of the real thing there do you think this defense is Still going to be good enough starting Tina Charles? Not if they're forced to play zone. Uh, you know, there is, it's interesting. Uh, my Sky have been not that good against his own defense for most of the season, which is very strange given the amount of playmaking and 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 uh, just feel for the game on the Sky roster. But like, are you going to play zone against the Las Vegas Aces? Like, <laughs> really? Uh, even the Sun have, have I think kind of overperformed against his own defense. So. Can Tina Charles still play that type of defense? I don't even I don't know if I even even want to say still because she was never the type of uh, defender that Ezzy Magbiger currently is. No, but she at least played on good defenses. Yeah, she played on she played on good defenses as and of course as a big you know that's probably means a little bit more. But can she at least play competently in this turnover forcing havoc inducing scheme that the Storm want to play? That's going to be the big question because they're playing Tina Charles at the five. So that's probably the most important defensive position on the court. If you compare what she does to what Ezzy Magberger does on defense, it's been night and day so far. And I'm not sure if that concern is really going to go away. Yeah, there are still some some serious moments of, uh, I think, confusion for Tina Charles in a pretty complicated scheme. Like, this is not how the rest of the league plays defense. They could just be trying to ease her into things. Yeah, you know? I, I don't really think they're going to play zone throughout the playoffs. Like, I think they are, let's do with the, the zone while we kind of practice our scheme. Let's get Tina Charles kind of to the to the point where she has a better grasp of kind of the assignments and everything like that. Um, Here's the thing about that, Stephen. If, if you're playing a zone defense, it's not just covering up what Tina Charles maybe can't do on defense anymore. It's kind of taking players like Gabby Williams and Brianna Stewart out of positions to make plays, which is what makes this defense so intimidating in the first place, right? Yeah, I mean, they have essentially three all-defense players in, in Stewart and Ezzy and Gabby Williams. Like those, and Lloyd is up there too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Lloyd, I don't think is having like an all-defense season this year, but she is that caliber for sure. But I think those three players will probably be on all defense teams. Yeah, I I was more kind of thinking maybe they'll actually try to run the zone for the rest of the season before playing Washington and, and kind of, you know, going back to a real defense yesterday. I didn't get to see the game on Sunday, but Saturday at least they, they played their kind of normal defense here. But 
There are other, I guess, without even kind of doing for and against kind of strictly in order here, like, what are you thinking about just Tina Charles as as the new starter for, for this team? I still think it can work. I still think it can work. Uh, but with some reservations, obviously. Uh, the problem for me is it's not just what Tina Charles is doing. It's what her presence is keeping their other players from doing. More shots for Tina Charles means fewer shots for Jewel Lloyd and for Brianna Stewart. Two players who are arguably the best in the world at their respective positions. Um, I would much rather see Tina Charles come off the bench or at least play against bench lineups, stay in there against bench lineups, maybe do a little little bit of rotation staggering there. I don't know. The one thing that she does add is, as you like to say, get a bucket. You know, she's another player who you can give the ball to and she can create a shot. Might not be the most high efficiency high shot, but, you know, she's going to do more with the basketball than Izzy Magwiger does. Well, I, I do think that's a, a big positive for this move is like you have another player who you can, because without Tina Charles, this team really has two scorers. And I just, I'm not sure that's enough right now. Like with the number of these teams that actually have multiple players that can score Which is the why they need her coming off the bench, Steven. I, I know. And that's the thing about this offense is like they were kind of, you know, not amazing with their starting group offensively, but kind of like pretty fine with their starting group. And it was really the bench that was killing them. And, you know, my fear starting Tina Charles instead of Ezzy Magbiger is that they are no longer going to be able to defend at an elite level. And Tina Charles isn't going to like categorically change their offense to bring them to the level of these other offenses. So when you are kind of removing what makes you special and not becoming special on the other end. I just don't think like, to me, the upside of Tina Charles on this team, and there is serious upside and, and it could definitely work out as they're doing it. But in my head, it was buoying that second unit, the, that group of players with January and Epiphany Prince and Steph Talbot, Ezzy Magbiger, like that unit had such a hard time scoring that Tina Charles can really kind of eat those minutes and, and like not have this team totally like put, you know, 80 offensive ratings together when Jewel Lloyd and Brianna Stewart are off the court. And I think that's kind of, you know, what's what's really important for this team. But I understand, you know, taking the more, it's probably more of an upside swing to start her, right? And think, okay, well, maybe now things can really be humming offensively uh, with, you know, Tina Charles. Even if you don't think Tina Charles is a great three-point shooter, you know, she has more gravity standing out there than Ezzy Mabigor. Definitely. Um, and obviously, honestly, I thought she had a couple of really positive offensive games. Uh, again, I, I didn't watch this one against on Sunday against Washington, but yesterday against Washington on Saturday, uh, you know, it was 14 points on 14 shooting possessions or whatever. Nothing statistically that that's like amazing for you. But she when she was at her best, she was just like, as I, I said yesterday on Twitter, just like leveraging her strength and putting Maisha Hines Allen in the goal and putting Shakira Austin in the goal. And they don't have that. And if if Tina Charles can give them that without missing seven shots from two steps behind the free throw line, like that, that that's going to be pretty good. Other strengths for the Seattle Storm? Uh, they have Brianna Stewart, um, who I think is, is the best player in the world. And they have Jewel Lloyd, who, like you said, is probably the best two guard in the world. They have three need a bucket type scorers, you know, like you were saying now, at least Tina Charles can kind of can kind of give them that. One thing I think is interesting Steph Talbot has gotten really stronger over the season has gone on statistically. Her true shooting percentage month by month, May, she was at 49%. June, she was at 55%. And then July, she was at 64%. So I think- Can they just play her more, please? 
Well, I mean, she was closing that game yesterday, and she's been in there late in games more often. So I think we're kind of inching to that point of, and that is one of the big questions is like, can this team just balance offense and defense? And I think Talbot brings them a little bit closer to being able to balance offensive defense. So uh, it's it's nice to see her closing. She played pretty late in that Sky game uh, that I think was a day game. And then she played really late up until they started to go offense defense on Saturday. So uh, let's move on to weaknesses for the Seattle Storm. Uh, first thing that jumps out, I think you have to mention the offense. I mean, they're pretty mediocre offensively. While they have those need-a-bucket, high-ceiling, high-caliber offensive players, as a team, they just go through so many stretches this season where they cannot manufacture good shots. Yeah, I mean, they're seventh in offense, and you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that that's just going to be good enough to win the WNBA title. Uh, Obviously, offense fluctuates very wildly from season to season, but the last time a WNBA champion posted under 100 offensive rating in the regular season was the 2015 Lynx, when only two teams total broke 100 offensive rating. So, you know, they do have a pretty okay 102 offensive rating in games that Brianna Stewart has played in. So those first couple early games where she had COVID, you know, because they were at like an 84 offensive rating or whatever, maybe it kind of artificially drives them down a little bit more. But, you know, I'm just concerned about Gabby Williams playing late minutes for this offense. Like, obviously, a 15% usage player who is shooting 25% from three is a player that defenses are just not going to worry about. And I, I know she has a lot of fans and she's very cool, but like she's a player who makes it harder for the rest of your good players to score on offense. I think the hope for Seattle is that she can offset that with her defense. And because Gabby Williams is one of the best players in the WNBA at turning defense into offense. But if you are in a half court situation, I think Stephanie Talbot is, is, is hands down the better option there, right? Because she can just do a heck of a lot more with the basketball and teams, as you said, aren't going to ignore her. Yeah. I guess like, will they do that? That's my concern. Like, are they going to play the player that can space the floor for their good players or the player that cannot space the floor for their good players? Um, Okay. So for one, this let's, let's delve a little deeper into this offensive inefficiency. Their shot distribution has not been really that great, at least in comparison to some of these other teams. When you talk about shots coming from within one to five feet from the basket, it's actually the lowest in the WNBA. They, they don't get to the rim at all. They don't get to the rim, and in probably, which has something to do with this, they don't get to the free throw line either. Uh, second to last in free throw rate by a healthy margin. Again, it's just like they're putting themselves in positions to take low efficiency shots. It seems like they hunt bad shots more often than other teams do. You know, I, I mean, I get you. They have tough shot makers, yeah, undoubtedly. But it's when you're looking for those shots that that becomes an issue. Brianna Stewart can get to the free throw line. Jewel Lloyd can get to the free throw line. But it just seems like they're being weighed down and their offense is just more difficult than it needs to be. One factor in this, as um, M. Adler from The Next has pointed out in the past, is that Brianna Stewart has just become insane from the short row. Like her 12 to 14 foot jump shot now is basically automatic so when that turns into a good shot you feel a little less of an impetus to get all the way to the rim perhaps but also you're always playing with one of gabby williams or ezzy magbiger or brian january players that are either not shooting threes or can't shoot threes uh, or you know 
have a decent percentage, but just take them at an extremely low volume, or, you know, they just, you don't feel too worried about closing out because their offensive game is, is limited in one way or the other. So their offseason commitment to turning offensive players into defensive players has worked in that they are a very good defense, but it has made life harder for the offensive players that they have. I think Jewel Lloyd has suffered the most from the new personnel and, and kind of the decrease in floor spacing. One other thing that I think is, is definitely worth mentioning is just that Sue Bird is not the player that she was even a year or two years or, or four years ago when they won the title in 2018. She, she just basically never shoots two-pointers. She is not that effective when she does. Well, let me put it this way. Of these five teams, which matchup, which team has uh, does Seattle have a favorable matchup at point guard against? Connecticut. Maybe. Because Heidemann is, is gonna go, still going to go right at Sue Bird. Yeah, I mean, Cloud is, I think, a physical problem for Super probably at this point. I mean, Connecticut is really the only one I would I would say. Yeah, I agree. Well, I guess that's that's kind of my point here. To your point, Super obviously one of the best players you've ever seen. Still effective at what she does in, in leading the team and setting up uh, players for success. But still a great passer, still a great yeah. three point shooter, still a good team defender. But you might end up needing more. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and compounding that. Nobody else at the position can really give you that either. These lineups with both Epiphany Prince and Brianne January in them, they need to go. I don't think Seattle can afford to do that in the playoffs. They've got a negative 7.3 net rating with those two guards sharing the floor. I think you're just throwing away minutes if you're going with these all-bench or these all-bench guard lineups. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that was our idea, right, when Tina Charles was coming in, is just salvaging that a little bit because before it was Tina Charles, it was John Tell Lavender, and that was really not going well. Decidedly did not work, no. Um, so I think you can probably really limit one of those two guards playing in the playoffs. Like I think January probably continues to play. I think Epiphany Prince might get a stint or two in the playoffs uh, when someone really needs a blow, but I, I think you can kind of reduce this to sort of an eight-player playoff rotation with January, Talbot, and I guess Ezzie Magbiger coming off the bench in the playoffs? January needs to play because she provides that physical lock and trail defense. Um, again, and she, she's also about... the only one of those types of defenders that they have. Right, right. And like I said in the offseason, I like the move because it saves Jewel Lloyd from having to do that. And we've seen Jewel Lloyd kind of wear down throughout the course of a season because her workload is just that heavy. And in the playoffs, like, you need Jules' offense. So Brian January, a player who has no issue doing the dirty work on defense. So I, I agree. I think she will still play. Any other big concerns, I guess, or strengths? Because we kind of bounce back and forth for this team. Yeah, I have one. Um, maybe not as concerned about their front court optionality as, as Vegas, but I think there is still a little bit of concern there because for all of her skills, Brianna Stewart never plays anything besides the four. And Ezzie Madbuger is pretty much exclusively a five. Tina Charles, at this point in her career, is a five. You know, I know she thinks she's a four, but she's not. She's a five. I don't think any of them really complement each other that well offensively. Like, Stewart and Charles kind of work in theory. But once again, how many of those shots that Tina Charles taking is coming at the detriment of Brianna Stewart? I mean, the reality of Tina Charles on this team is she's almost certainly going to win this team a playoff game that they otherwise wouldn't have won. And she's probably going to lose them a game due to Ooh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> kind of her defensive lapses. Like, you know, she's when she shoots 75% from the field, like she did in that Atlanta game, she's a pretty good player. Yeah. 
Um, but that that's a lot to ask for a player who's, you know, typically in like the low 50s in true shooting percentage. But I actually think that, you know, the you you probably have a little bit more lineup versatility on this team than, than maybe you're giving them credit for. Like if they play with their three-guard lineup with Breon January alongside Bird and Lloyd, and then you play Talbot at the four, you can do that against some bench lineups, I think. You know, maybe not closing against, because pretty much all these teams have like a star four and a star five. So that's a lot to ask for. But in spot minutes, when you just kind of want to open things up offensively, you know, maybe you can get away with that. And it's not a okay. terrible defensive group. I mean, Talbot has played some pretty good post players pretty well as, you know, giving you spot minutes at the four. That's true. Stephanie Talbot can play the four if needed. That, that's true. I forgot about that. One thing I want to mention about Seattle real quick. Seattle, I think, has had a lot of shooting luck in regards to their defense. Opponents are shooting 32.1% from three-point range, which is the lowest mark in the WNBA. They're also allowing the fewest points per possession on off-dribble jumpers so far. So it's kind of like reverse Las Vegas aces there. That could regress at any time. Well, one other thing I actually wanted to say as well, um, now that we made it this far in the notes, is kind of the transition game on both ends. They never allow any transition possessions, which I think is very good and, and definitely notable. They are tied for the best in the league with Vegas, but also their transition offense is so dependent on Brianna Stewart and Jewel Lloyd. Like basically nobody else on this team, amazingly for a team that has Gabby Williams, like, but basically- You would no- think that she would get out in transition as much as possible, right? Yeah. I mean, that that would really kind of maximize her skill set, but Brianna Stewart and Jewel Lloyd are really the only- players on this team with high volume transition possessions and when you're when so much of your transition game is kind of predicated on on two players I think there's room for that to not necessarily carry over as much Um, but they still force a ton of turnover so I maybe it still will okay maybe it will maybe it won't um we need to move on to Washington Washington Mystics also 19 and 12 they just played two games against the Seattle Storm not much decided, to be honest. Uh, each team won one game. Both are pretty close. They currently rank eighth in offense, so that's worst of this group. But they rank first in defense. They have uh, two games remaining against these teams above 500. One against Las Vegas, one against Chicago. They're currently 500 at 5-5. Five and five. I think, Stephen, this is something we keep going back to when we talk about the Mystics. There are two different Mystics teams. There's one with Elena Deladon and one without Elena Deladon. And the one with Elena Deladon probably a championship contender, right? The one without, maybe not so much. Yep, it's been that way. It's, it's certainly looked that way this year. Um, with Games with Elena Deladon, uh, just about 103 offensive rating. Games without her, 97 offensive rating. Those numbers were actually even a little bit more stark than they are now before uh, playing Dallas's defense without Elena Deladon and Seattle's defense with Elena Deladon. And thank you to Across the Timeline for allowing us to get those statistics. That's an awesome update. So, uh, Curtis, if you're listening, uh, one, thank you. Two, I'm sorry. Yeah, don't. Uh, but mostly thank you. Uh, those, that's a very helpful split to have, especially in this case. So what, what do we think about the Mystics and what could propel them to a title? Uh, their defense. Anytime you have a team that's number one in defense at this point in the season— like, I'll, I'll use uh, the Atlanta Dream as an example. They started really, really well on defense, but it's like, well, is that sustainable? At this point in the season, the Mystics have had the best defense in the league because they're good at both forcing turnovers and controlling the free-throw line on defense. So with that, I think they may be able to compensate for any half-court offensive deficiencies they might have without Elena Deladon, of course. Because, I mean, Stephen, they, they just have defenders everywhere. Their starting perimeter trio, specifically, of... Natasha Cloud, 
Ariel Atkins and Alicia Clark. Like, I don't even know if you can pick three defensive perimeter players league-wide that would like make more sense together than these three perimeter players. They can all guard on the ball, multiple positions. They're all plus help defenders. They can all switch just about as well as any group of perimeter defenders in the league. I, I don't even think I can pick um, two perimeter defenders that are as good at switching as Natasha Cloud and Alicia Clark, and, and they play on the same team. Again, all, all three of them are just terrific help defenders. Atkins is probably the best help defending guard in the league for my money. You know, their defensive rating together, those three players, 94 points allowed per 100 possessions. That's very, very good. And unlike some of the other elite defensive combos, like, um, you know, say Seattle's, like they don't have to worry about playoff viability. Like all three of these players we know are playoff players. Like they're going to be viable in a five-game series. And I'll take that one step further. You have probably the best perimeter defensive trio in the WNBA right now. And they can also back them up with some pretty effective interior defenders. You know, we always say that Elena Deladon is maybe not the best uh, defensive four, but she's so long and she's so effective in her help defense and, and you know, staying vertical without fouling. And then Shakira Austin has She's good. Been... Elena Deladon is a good defensive player. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, th- I think, you know, defense is something that I think their reputation kind of precedes players. It, it's, it takes people maybe another year or two to maybe really adjust to their opinion relative to defense because Elena Deladon came into the league not an effective defender um but in this environment when she's playing the four you know I think any concerns you might have about her defense are kind of nullified because you're not asking her to defend on the perimeter and she's just being smart with her defense being smart with her wingspan blocking shots if she needs to but you know staying out of foul trouble as well but yeah I agree she's a good defender and then Shakira Austin has just been a revelation as a rookie like I think the last time I I saw a, a rookie post player come in and be this effective on defense was Kia Stokes in 2015. Like Austin has just been amazing on defense. So and you, if you bring Elizabeth Williams off the bench, that's another strong interior defender. So you just have so much activity and so much discipline and so much versatility. Like it's really hard to find fault in this team's team defense. Defense is like not the concern, right? They're they're going to be no, able to, safe to say no. pretty much anybody that they guard, I think. They're forcing way more mid-rangers than any other zone. They're allowing a ton of threes. So, I mean, what that tells me, those two numbers combined, is that these three perimeter options are just not allowing any dribble penetration whatsoever. The theory of this team, I guess, is just like elite defense. And then on the other end, Elena Deladon and spacing around Elena Deladon because they are kind of a middling offense. um, And and you do worry about that end, I think, a, a little bit more. Well, we're still on strengths, so I wanted to uh, tie that into a weakness that I had, but yeah, I Please. agree. No, go ahead. Okay, um, I think this team is going to struggle to put pressure on the rim. As as awesome as Elena Deladon is, you don't really have any secondary. I mean, Ariel Atkins has gotten better at it. Natasha Cloud can get to the rim, but you don't really worry about dribble penetration from either of those two players like you would a Kelsey Plum or I mean, a Kalia well, Copper. Can, can I just, like, how... Much better would you feel about this team winning the title if Maisha Hines Allen was just the offensive player she was in 2020? Because she put pressure on the rim. That player did. She did. I'd feel a lot better. And it almost feels like Hines Allen has kind of been tied down in relation to her role in 2020. Because, you know, back then it was like her and Ariel Powers kind of had free reign to do whatever they wanted on offense. And that was, you could see her confidence just, just flowing as she would attack from that triple threat position and from from the top of the key because people were really having a hard time staying with her off the dribble this season it's almost like she's really hesitant 
Like, she's she's thinking a lot. She's looking to make the extra pass, which is fine. But, I mean, her role is a play finisher. She excels at, at finishing plays. And it seems like she's just settling for a lot of jump shots. Um, her transition frequency is way down, especially for a player who, you know, has those physical gifts. And, and I think they really need that element out of her, especially in non-Alina Deladon minutes. If, if they could just get some easy transition buckets, like this offense would, I think, you know, just save themselves a lot of headaches because they, they that can't is not a Mike Tebow her. thing. That is not a Mike Tebow thing. I don't know why his teams have never gotten out in transition. So interesting, but uh, that's that's how they roll. So what what else do these Mystics have going for them though? Well, I think they have fairly good shooting. Cloud is a little bit. She's a shooter. She is. Uh, I've heard that. Um, I'm not sure I've if I believe too, it, yeah. but. You know, you definitely trust Atkins shooting the ball. Elena Deladon is is one of the all-time greats. Uh, Alicia Clark is a little bit down from her kind of normal three-point shooting numbers, but her shot looks good. Like you, you think uh, in a in a five-game series, you know, it, it it can go either way. And they they just have, I think, the best offensive player in the world still. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. And I guess if you put this into perspective, you think about it in a playoff scenario. Deladon's not going to be getting any more rest games, so it's probably you're, you're you're going, you're probably looking at the best version of this team when it matters the most. So, all right. My biggest concern for this team, I would say, is that they have one initiator, Natasha Cloud. I yeah. I don't really think that Rui Mashida is going to be able to play in the playoffs. So not often. What because are you she, doing, I guess, in the seven minutes that Cloud is not going to play? That's a very good question. Because they also don't really have many frontcourt players who can initiate, like a Chicago or a Connecticut or even a Seattle. Um, it's pretty much exclusively playing through Natasha Cloud. And then if she's not on the floor, like, it's it's a struggle bus. It's, it's a struggle. Obviously, they're going to keep playing slow because they just play slow anyways. But... I mean, yeah, I, I, don't I think, think that's the thing is like maybe you play, you sit Cloud and Deladon at the same time for, you know, three minutes a half together and then just absolutely grind it down to a halt. And you just, you just take the L on those minutes and play, yeah. play as few possessions as possible. Coaches would never do this because they would never like willingly, I guess, just like sacrifice possessions like this. But you are a lot better off if over the three minutes each half that Elena Deladon and Natasha Cloud are playing, if that's eight possessions per team as opposed to 16 possessions per team because it's just more opportunities for, for each team to either score or not score. But I think you're probably just going to play Shatori Walker-Kimbrough as sort of the nominal backup point guard, have Atkins do a little bit more initiating and then play through whoever it is, Heinz Allen or Deladon, that, that's in the game. I guess that that's kind of what the move would be. Okay, so you don't think they're going to sit both Deladon and Cloud at the same time? I mean, that's probably what I would do, but I, I, I mean, I, I don't know how you. They just, I mean, hey, maybe they play Rui Machida because she can at least dribble and pass. But I just think the offense is going to be so starved if that's, and she's obviously not a playoff defender. So, um, I don't know. What, what do you think you would do? I think you need to keep Elena Deladon on the floor for as many minutes as you can. So I don't know. I don't know if I would punt. On those playoff minutes, and you probably more stagger those two than sit. Them yeah, at the same time. yeah, because well, here's the thing about punting possessions. This is the playoffs, and the Mystics are, you know, they might not be in a position. They might not even have home home court. So, 
every minute is going to be valuable. Every possession is going to be valuable. I think you just got to play your best players until the wheels fall off, honestly. That's what you've been saving them for, right? That's what the point of giving Deladon all these maintenance days is. So, yeah, I mean, it is a very valid concern, though. I don't think Rui Machida is a, is a playoff player either. And they just don't really have much ball handling outside of their main point guard duo. Any other concerns? Well, I think it's time to get to the kind of big question about this team. Who is the fifth closing player uh, against the best teams? You know, Seattle, it's it's game two. You got to kind of win this game to stay alive. Are you closing with Maisha Hines-Allen, Shakira Austin, or Elizabeth Williams? I think all of these players, they're very specific players, very specific strengths and weaknesses without yes. really a ton of overlap, which I think is what makes it so interesting. It feels like to me the momentum is shifting a little bit towards Maisha Hines-Allen. What do you think about that? Would you agree with me just from like kind of like watching this team play, not necessarily what you would do? Yes, and I don't know why. I don't know why it is. Because well, Hines-Allen... I, I do know why, I think. She's their only option to play five out. She's not an amazing okay. shooter, but she'll at least shoot threes. She can hit them at 35 36%. Um, you know, she's not a 40% shooter, but she at least takes them okay. And she can attack off the dribble as well. You know, if, I think if you're if you're involving... That's the thing about five-out offenses. If you're involving your, your quote-unquote, four or five in all these handoffs and, and screening at the top, you're severely hamstringing that kind of offense if that player is not a threat to either shoot or dribble. So, yes, I agree with you. That That is a good point. So, like you like to say, the more recent championship teams have all been able to play five out. Elizabeth Williams, to me, is, I think, the best defensive player of this three-player group pretty comfortably. But I think what she does defensively is also kind of what Elena Deladon does defensively, which is be a rim protector. And, and I think... You do probably want Elena Deladon at the five. I think her best playoff moments have come as a five defensively, you know, guarding John Quill Jones, guarding Candace Parker, stuff like that. Shifting her to the four puts a little bit more of a perimeter onus on her, which I think is, is maybe where you can get in trouble. And also... Which team... Hang on. Which team is that going to be an issue against, though? What? Having her play the four? Yeah. <sighs> that's a good question. Because uh, I'm not sure that's... I don't think that's a big deal against most of these teams. Certainly not against Connecticut. Probably not against Las Vegas. Probably not against Vegas, yeah. I mean, maybe it's Chicago, but... Maybe Chicago with all the all the moving Misaman does if, without yeah, the basketball. Yeah, if Misaman really kind of ups her volume a little bit more and stuff like that. But, you that, know, Seattle, like, Stewart's game this season has mirrored Deladon's in many ways. That's true. That's a good point. I wouldn't be that concerned about that, okay. to be honest. Williams, I think, is also... I don't think she's a bad offensive player, but I think she's a very specific offensive player and coaches like to do the thing that I think she's less good at than the things that she's good at. You know, I think she's a really good roller and not all that effective of a post-up. Also, Deladon and Ewill is the least effective rebounding pair out of the three. I mean, it's just amazing how good Shakira Austin is already at, you know, rebounding the ball. And, and, you know, rebounding is a young player's game for sure, but that they are a good rebounding team, not just that she actually gets rebounds, is pretty remarkable. Shakira Austin, I think... I mean, she's the most talented of the group, but and she's the best offensive player, probably, I would say, of, of these three. Would you agree with that? Yes. I think one thing Shakira Austin doesn't get credit for, or at least one of the things that has made her so effective as a rookie, she moves out of the, out the ball so well. You know, she's really good at making herself available, using every inch of that very long wingspan, and she's a very good athlete. She can finish with both hands. She's got that soft touch around the basket. She is pretty much the ultimate complementary player to this starting five, right? And her touch is just, she doesn't 
blow layups that other yeah. rookie bigs kind of getting used to the league miss. Or, like, or other veteran bigs. I mean, yeah, uh, truly. Uh, I mean, I think on this team, like, she's got the highest ceiling of any of these three options. But she is a rookie center, and that is a lot to ask defensively. Granted, they have a ton of infrastructure around her defensively, but we saw her make mistakes on both ends that, you know, arguably cost them that Saturday game against Seattle. And it, it does kind of lose that five-out element and, and makes things a little bit tighter for your offensive hub, Elena Deladon. Like, if it's just a lot easier for her to score when there's four players standing behind the line than when there's three players standing behind the three-point line. Very true. So what do you think? Who, who would you go with? I'm still going with Austin. I think that last point that you made is, is key for me. They have plenty of defense already. And while center is the most important defensive position, I don't see many situations, at least in the playoffs, where Austin is just going to completely blow a game defensively. Maybe Seattle would be a problem. Vegas probably with how much dribble penetration they can get. But otherwise, I think I would trust Austin's finishing around the rim, just her ability to catch and finish, and just raise the ceiling of any lineup she's a part of. I could see why they want to go with Heinz Allen, but I just don't think the defense is there for her. I guess I should should talk a little bit more about Heinz Allen, because I think she's probably the player I would go with. Okay, why is that? She's definitely the best passing big of any of these three options, and they don't have a ton of, outside of Deladon, a ton of individual scoring, so I think that little bit of extra passing might be important. Okay. Um, I think she's the most perimeter adept defensive player of this group. They are all relatively mobile, I would say, but Heinz Allen is probably the one you want kind of guarding out on the perimeter the most. Uh, maybe it's Austin if you are like playing aggressively in terms of like hedging and trapping and stuff like that. She's, she's better at that than Heinz Allen. I just think she's probably your best chance at sort of blending offense and defense. I think she's maybe a better defensive player than we've given her credit for in the past. Like she just is always there to contest vertically and, you know, she's not that big, so she doesn't get a lot of steals and blocks, but her, her timing in her rotations, I think is better than I've given it credit for in the past. So because she can shoot a little bit and because I don't think there's a huge drop off defensively, I mean, the problem is just that, you know, she shoots 42% from two this season 43% the last two seasons combined, like that 42% number this season is bottom third in the league. That's as a big, that's, remark- that's good. remarkably bad for the position that she plays. You know, I say Tina Charles, I like, I worry about Tina Charles taking shots away from Brianna Stewart, but Heinz Allen taking shots away from Elena Deladon should be equally concerning, I think. Yeah, that, that maybe that's, that, that's a really good point, actually, um, that just kind of the offense that she might even kind of take within the, the role that she has is kind of pretty damaging to this team that needs efficient offense at this level. So I don't know. It's it's pretty tough. You know, there was definitely a time where I was thinking that Elizabeth Williams would end up closing games just because she's the most sound defensively. Uh, you know, she's easily, I think, the best traditional can roll defender. You know, maybe if you want to really kind of force turnovers and make plays, you'd have Austin in there. But she's just such a smart, intelligent defender that, you know, it's what you need maybe against kind of a more veteran high and opponent but these other two just kind of give you a little bit more upside offensively i think it, it might be more likely yeah that i mean that's that's kind of that was kind of my point with austin i said ceiling you said upside i think we had the same thought process there anything else you wanted to talk about about this team because um i i don't know there's something that you know i think because they have elena deladon and we've kind of seen this team do it before like i can see a real run going here but you know they have 
like we've talked about before, they, they don't really have the second best offensive player on a title team, you know, traditionally. So that that is really concerning to me. Well, you like them more than Connecticut. I do like them more than Connecticut. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, Stephen, just how much of this hesitancy is because we've seen them play so many games without Deladon and how much of that has kind of warped the statistics against them. Um, like I said, they've been the, the reason for, they've been doing that is so they can save the best version of themselves for when it matters most. Uh, I do think, like, uh, I really, for them, I think home court advantage is going to be so important, which is why I think they, they really should have, I, I really think they could have won that game earlier on, uh, on Saturday against Seattle. If, like, if they swept that series or if they took both those games, I think I would have been a lot more confident about them. It just doesn't seem like they have that high of a ceiling, does it? At least not on offense. I guess with Elena Deladon, like, because she's Elena Deladon, and like I said, I think she's the best offensive player in the league still right now. I think they have the ceiling, but I also think that the offense has a really, really low floor. Well, okay, so bringing this all home here, I think we could both agree that the two clear favorites are Chicago and Las Vegas, right? I would agree. Who who do you like best out of the next group? I think I like Seattle the best. I would agree with you. I think I like okay. Seattle the best. Um, I think Tina Charles definitely just brings them an upside that this team didn't have before in terms of just another scorer that defenses have to worry about. Yeah, there are concerns defensively. There are even concerns offensively. Honestly, the volume shooting, like I, I saw a lot of people saying, well, you don't want to start Tina Charles because she takes a lot of shots. Like the offense is not really a, that much of a concern for me. I'm much more concerned about what it means for them defensively, but because of that upside and because I think they have some real two-way lineups that this team can play against really, really good teams, and they have probably the best player in the world. That's what it comes down to, right? The the, the most the most players who are the best in the world at their respective positions. But if that's the case, then why do we like Chicago so much? I, that's This is an interesting discussion, for sure. So it's it feels like you, you are least confident in Washington. Yes, I would say, well, mm, I th- actually, I think I'm least confident in Connecticut. Because we've seen they've been more or less like the same team for so many years now, and they just haven't gotten it done year after year in the playoffs, that is. Um, I'm not that confident in Washington either, though. I, th- I think it's it's Chicago and Las Vegas, clear gap. Seattle, clear gap. Connecticut and Washington. Okay. Uh, book it. Your uh, 2022 finals winners, Connecticut. Some. Um, all right. Let's. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to support the show, which we always appreciate, you can do so by following, rating, and reviewing on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at DoubleDownWNBA. You can follow Eric at E or myself at Trinkwald. And we will probably take next week off and come back for the conclusion of the regular season with a little playoff preview. All right. Thank you so much again, as Stephen said. Uh, Take care, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will uh, talk to you again soon.